Good morning and welcome back for another week. Our learning is dedicated to for all those in need. I want to thank everyone. I want to thank everyone for their patience. I know that the last couple of weeks, uh, the shiurim have been um, maybe a little bit uh, more frenetic. My, my schedule has been a little bit crazy, uh, but God willing, with this year, I conclude the first half of camp, and uh, next month I'll have a little bit more time to uh, to both uh, prepare uh, a little bit more, and more than that, um, I will have time, please God, to record with time to spare. But it is it is Sunday morning, and the link is supposed to be shared. So here we go. We left off last week as to be continued. How are we supposed to um, take a look at this story? How are we supposed to understand everything that has happened so far? We are going to pick up from where we left off. And so now, here we go. What do we have? We start from the moment that we are introduced to um, Yael. But before we do that, I just want to go back ever so slightly to understand a little bit more of what we learned last week. And so the question is, what made Devorah attacked at just precisely the moment that she did. Why, why does she wait no longer? Why does she feel like that if I don't attack now, if, if Barak and his 10,000 men don't come flying down the mountain at this exact moment, it's not going to work. So listen to what the Abar Benel says. The Abar Benel has an amazing comment, which I think is so insightful. He says the following, Amar kasher she saw that Sison is in all of his chariots were coming to the edge of Nachal Kishon. And it appeared it even appeared as though there was the possibility, the potential, the wherewithal of, of, of uh, Sisra to take his chariots and go up the mountain. That's contrary to what we said last week. We said that the beauty of the mountain was that it neutralizes his forces, but apparently not. According to the Avarbanel, he was willing to go up it. And this is a fascinating method, methodological point, is that the Avarbanel doesn't have the benefit of seeing what Haritavor is and what Nachal Kishon is. So perhaps his suggestion is based on a concept of a mountain and chariots and what it looks like in Spain, in Portugal, in, I believe, Italy, which is where he finished his life. I don't know. But but perhaps, though, Sister says, listen, it's going to be hard. We're going to be neutralized to a certain extent. But 900 chariots are still 900 chariots. And we could overpower the 10,000 men. Don't wait for him to go up the mountain. Why? Because she says, this is the day that God has put Sisra in your hand. Today is the day that you're going to win. But if you wait, you won't win. God is determined that this is the moment. You wait, it's not going to happen. Why I think that is important is because sometimes in life we have a moment, and that's the moment that God says, if you do this now, you'll be Matsuya. But if you're going to wait, and if you're going to hope, and the moment will be better, 
and, and the opportunity will be different. Then God says, what do you want? I gave you a chance. I wanted you to succeed, but you opted not to take advantage of that. Similar to the story of the man that's drowning in the water and uh, he says, God will save me and a, a life uh, a boat goes, comes by. He says, no, no, Hashem will save me. I, uh, another person comes by and one after another after another. And finally, the guy drowns. And he comes up to God and says, God says, what? I understand what happened. And he says, to the, he said, God, I understand. It's, it's on you. You told me. I, I believe that you're going to save me. He said, the boat, I said. The life preserver, I said. The plank, the raft, all those things. Said, and you said, God will save me. Sometimes when the moment is right, we have the opportunity to be successful. We have to take advantage of it. Okay, that's the Abarbanel. And I think it paints a beautiful picture of the entire story is that everything that happens in this entire story, everything that Sisra does and everything that Barak does in retaliation, in response, it is all so clearly Yad Hashem. And therefore, even though waiting on the mountain for Sisra to come up is so much easier, no. So Pasuk 10. So Hashem he confuses Sisra and all of his chariots that call by the sword in front of Barak. Sisra goes off of his chariot and he runs by foot. And Barak chases after all of the chariots and the entire encampment, all the people, the rest of the army. Minus Sisra, Barak chases after them. Where? Ad Harosha Goyim. So Harosha Goyim, which is where they were from. By Paul, Komachnes Sisra Lati Kherev, Lunishar Adacha. And all of Sisra's camp, they all die. Chutz, me one. Except for that one, Lunishar Adacha. One of them remain. Who is that one? Sisra. Now, why is that important? Because the whole story is going to continue with Sisra. Okay. So let's just take a look at these uh, at these psukim carefully. The the psukim tell us something fascinating. They tell us that Vayaha, Sisra's entire army is confused. Says Matitiao ben Yosef, Josephus. Josephus, the famous historian, says that the, when the rain came, it made the land impassable, unpassable, and the horses go crazy. Vayaha. The interesting thing is, if you take a look at the Pesukim below, these are from the story of Kriyat Yam. So, there was a confusion by Machanim Mitzrayim, by Yaham, by Yaham. And then, if you take a look a little bit later, the water covers over the Rechev and the Parashim. And the entire army of Egypt is consumed by the water. Loni Sharbahem Loni And only one remained. Only one survived. Now, the fact that these stories have similar language, Loni Shar, that's pretty significant. The fact that we have chariots in both army, this sister figure seems to parallel Paro. These stories seem to be too connected. And so to just ignore it and say, mm, it's, a, it's a coincidence is a pretty hard sell. So what are our possibilities? But before we do that, I, I must share with you a fascinating Gemara. The Gemara says the following. 
The Jewish people in this generation, they were of little faith. Little faith, okay? This is by Yamru al Yam Yamsuf that they rebel at the Yamsuf. It seems as though the Jewish people rebelled at this moment. Just like we're coming out from one side, the Egyptians also, they've taken a path out the other way. God says to the Sarshal Yam, the, the angel, the minister, the angel that, that is the ministering angel over the Yam, I want you to spit the chariots out onto dry land. Okay, so the Jewish people are afraid that what happened, the Jewish people say, like, I understand. We came out, they're going to come out. God says, all right, I'll prove it to you. How? I'm going to spit out the chariots on the dry land. The Saro Shalyam says, What do you mean, God? You just gave a gift to the sea. You're going to take it back? You're an Indian giver. God says, I'll pay back with interest one and a half times. How am I going to do this? No slave will ever come. And, and, and have tainas on their masters saying, you owe me. God says, no, you know what? Nachal kishon will be my array, will be my guarantor. And at that point, what happens? The sea spits out the, the, um, the chariots and at that, mo- at that moment, what happens? The Jewish people see the Egyptians dead on the banks of the river. What is How is it paid back one and a half times? It is the 600 chariots that are, that, that of Paro are replaced with 900 chariots of, of, um, of uh, Sisra. Okay, so beautiful. This Gemara is so, is so difficult to understand. What does that mean? 600, 900. The fish, really? The fish were interested in the chariots? Okay, maybe they, maybe my choice of fish pictures is not exactly ideal. Maybe you could have more carnivorous fish, sharks, and big fish like that that would revel in the fact that they're eating the Egyptians. But again, what do we make of this whole story? So I think that the question that we have to try to understand is what is the connection to the splitting of the sea and why these two tribes? Remember that the two tribes that were up there were Naphtali and Zvulun. The Naphtali and Zvulun of the tribes are not exactly tribes that we know a whole lot about. There's a, there's a fascinating, wonderful book called The Tapestry of the Tribes, something along those lines by Nechama Price. It's, it's brilliantly done. She takes the Shvatim from Horatius and she then watches how they play out throughout Tanakh. It's, it's a great, 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 great read and really very interesting how it all plays out. What's interesting is that Ruvain, Shimon, Levi, Yehuda, Yosef, Benjamin, there's a, there's a, a storyline, at least, of some sort that we see in Bereshus. 
What do we know about Nachtal? What do we know about Zibulun? Not so much. Well, we do know a couple of things. First off, we know that there are tribal symbols. The Naftali, Naftali is an ayala. It is a hind, it's a deer, it's a fast-moving animal. Zvulun, Zvulun we know, is, are the merchants of the sea. What's significant about, about all this? Beyond that, do we know a story about Naftali? So there is a story of Naftali. It's not in the text, it's Midrashic. Hinted, just barely in the text. What happens? Asav. Esav comes to the Levi of Yaakov Avinu, and he says, listen, you know what? This is not right. Maris HaMachtela has eight spots in it, six spots in it, however you want to do it, but there's only one spot left. Who is that? Who's entitled to that spot? Well, let's see. Maris HaMachtela is, was the possession of Yitzchak. Yitzchak divided his stuff and said, Yaakov, you took your half already. You buried Leah in there. Check. You're, you've already been Yotze, what, is, what you're entitled to. I have not. And therefore, that's my spot. So they say, what do you mean? There is a, there's a contract out on, on, this whole, on this piece of property. Esau, you took all of my father's possessions. He paid you for this piece of land. Probably one of the most expensive graves ever purchased. You're, you don't have it anymore. Sorry. And Esau says, what do you mean? Prove it. And he says, prove it. I'll prove it. Okay, there's a contract, but it's sitting in my father's files in Mitzrayim. So what happens? Asa says, okay, time out. Let's wait on the interment until you can prove it to me. If I'm wrong, fine, I'm evater. Bring the contract. Naftali is chosen. Why? Naftali is swift. Naftali is quick. Now, in the end, it doesn't matter. Why? Because Hushim ben Dan, the Medrash says, um, is an unbelievably incredible baseball player, has a great swing. It's such a hard swing, Asaph's head goes rolling into Marisol. So says the Medrash. Naftali is fast. Naftali is quick. Zvulun, Zvulun are merchants. Listen to this thought by Avram Remmer. That's amazing. And I think that he answers in this thought both the connection to the splitting of the sea, including perhaps even this medrash, uh, this gemara in, in Pesachim with the fish and spitting it out, which anyway is a little bit hard to understand. And I think he, he, he explains where Naftali and Zulun work into this whole thing. So he says the following. Naftali comes to teach us that the land is a place that, that you could live with fulfillment, the, 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 the desire, and, and, and zrizus, alacrity, and noah, and peace. And that is something that is in contradistinction to the iron chariots of the Knani. They go against the grain. They're exactly the opposite of what the Knani culture is. He is fast. He's swift. He's, he's content. Naftali says, I am willing to live in a place like this. I don't need more. 
I don't need and need and need and need and need. I don't want. That's the Kanani culture. And so that is Naftali on the one, on the one hand. Perhaps you could also say he's swift on his feet. He's swift or what? It's all for the service of God. What is what is Zvulun is the, the, the merchant that's honest. Also against ways of time started. That was the beginning. It doesn't end until the land of Israel is settled fully in a way that is consistent with the hashkafa, the philosophy of God. And that is why we have Nathalie. That's why we have Zulu. Devora is meant to take the culture of Canaan and flip it on its head. Devora is supposed to take Kriyas Yamsov and say, that was the start. This is going to be the end. In theory, if you look carefully at the first four Shoftim, I believe it's Ravigal Ariel that points out the first four Shoftim are good people. They do the right thing. There is not a guarantee Vayasad Harabe Hashem has to be before and after. Devorah creates an event that could be the conclusion of Yitzhak time with the Gula Shleima. Unfortunately, it does not play out that way. If you read Devorah's story carefully, which we will not, but if you read Devorah's story carefully, the Shiraz Shira's Devorah carefully, you'll see what does she do? She alludes to Mitzrayim, Yitzhak Mitzrayim, Matan Torah, Kriyas Yamsu, those seminal events in Jewish history, because she wants to say that they are all part of a continuum that should hopefully end. That's the sad nature of Sefer Shoftim. It's that Sefer Shoftim constantly finds us in a place of it could have been, it should have been, but it wasn't. And so that is the story of, of Yitzhak Mitzayim as it interfaces with our story here at Nachal Kisho. Let's continue with Pasuk Yud Zayin. V'sisor nas v'raglav. Sisor runs by his, by, by his feet. El oel yael. To the, the tent of yael. Eishas chever ha-keni. Who is the wife of chever. Who is a keni. Ki shalom ben yavin melech hatzor. Uvein beit chever ha-keni. And there is a peace of some sort between yavin and the house of chever ha-keni. Chever ha-keni, in case you're not sure who that is. That is... Um, that is the family of Yitro. Now, Radak says, why does he run there? They all ran to Harosh Agayin. So what his plan was, he says, listen, there is peace between us and Yael and her family. I'll stay there until the war passes. And then I'll read. Now, what's interesting is that Yavin is to Devorah what Sisra is to Yael. What does that mean? Yavin is the leader, but he's not active in the battle. We don't see him. He doesn't die. We don't know what happens to him. Sisra and Yael are also the ones that make it happen. And yet there seems to be a very big difference between them. The question that we have to try to understand is where does Barak fit in? It seems like he doesn't really fit into this. What's the message? 
Why is it that Yavin is to Devorah, which, which, what, which as Sisra is to Yael? And why is Barak left out of it? Did not have an easy time finding a, uh, a graphic that captures the essence of this. But nobody's going to say, keep calm, you lost to a girl. As a kid, the ultimate insult was you play like a girl. And to lose to a girl, if you're a third grader, hoo-ha, that is embarrassing. Now amplify it. You're talking about Sisra, the ruthless leader. Yavin, the Iron King of Canaan. Who do they lose to? Devorah, Eshet Lapidot, who sits underneath a tree. That's hard. Yael, what is she? She's Eshet Chever Akeni. We don't know anything else about her. She's just a wife. She's a homemaker, which God forbid I don't mean in a condescending way, but in the times have the mightiest warrior. 900 chariots at his disposal, and he loses to a housewife. That's hard. It's not going to be so simple for him to say, keep calm, you lost to a girl. But why is this? Says it by Michael Hatton beautifully. The whole purpose, the whole message of this entire story is, it's Yad Hashem. If Barak had somehow taken his 10,000 men, his ragtag team, and beaten Sisra, maybe you could make the argument that this was not Yad Hashem. But Yael and Devorah is the people. And that the text says, Devorah says clearly, the war will be won in the hands of a woman. That is a very, very, very tough one. But that makes it clear that it's the Yad Hashem. Let's take a look at this pasuk. How is she described? She is a wife. Nothing else. Take a look at this pasuk. Once again, we'll go into the Shira of Parak. When Devorah wants to describe herself, she is what? Aim Yisrael, the mother in Israel. What exactly is going on here? Why is the description as a wife and a mother? It doesn't really seem to be. Rabbi Hanan says they're using their skills. A motherly figure and a wife to secure the win for B'nai Yisrael. It's not army. But it's a mother who cares, whose heart bleeds for her children. She's the one that's going to do it. I get it. Understood. I understand the mother part. The wife, mm, not as much. How does that play into it? Let's put that on the back burner. But let's listen to the mal, the Malbim. The Malbim says very differently than the Radak. The Radak says his plan was to do what? Was to wait it out. And then he could escape back to Yavim Malbim, lick his wounds. But that's not what the Malbim says. The Malbim says, Hine Ma'ari Shalpo. Maria asks the question, How could you kill Sisra? There's peace between Sisra and her husband. And, and she brings him into her house. Understand that this is against the, the laws of warfare. If you bring someone in and say, I'm going to shelter you, then the person is coming into your home to your protection, how could you murder the person? That was the, the people that were at peace were those people that were down south. In Midbar Yehuda, perhaps the ones near the area of Yerifo. The, the husband of Yael had separated. He had put himself amongst, amongst the Jewish people. 
all bets are off. The peace treaty was out. It's an interesting possibility to understand what exactly happens. But now, let's take a look at Sisa versus Yael, brains versus brawn. So Yael comes out, right? Come to me, come to me. Don't be afraid. And, and he comes into her tent. She covers him with a blanket. It's an interesting question. Why smicha is spelled sin as opposed to samach? Why does he come in there? Why the word sura? She saw that he was a little bit on the fence. Should I come in or not? So, you have nothing to be afraid of. She doesn't say it twice because she sees that he's tentative about coming in. Sisra, the mighty man with the chariot and the sword, we're going to see that her weapons in just a moment. He says, I'm, my, my, I'm so parched. Imagine you're talking about the summertime, likely. Uh, it's the summertime, and he is so hot. He's running away from battle, and he's out of water. He says, I'm so thirsty. Give me something to drink. She gives him a, from, from the milk. And what happens? She gives him to drink, covers him up. He says, listen, if someone comes, a man passes by the tent and says, is anyone here? Say, no, deny, deny, deny. So she takes the tent peg. Take a look at the picture on the right. That really is actually, it's probably not so far off from what it looks like, looked like back then. There's this peg that you were nailed into the ground and it would hold the stake that holds the tent in its place. You have multiple ones all around so that the tent walls don't fly away. So she takes the yatada ol, she takes the mallet, the hammer in her hand, she comes quietly to him, and she pierces it into his temple, he is like literally Part of the ground. Um says Vatitznach is from the Lashon of Nitza. He is impaled into the ground. And he is out cold. He's asleep and he's dead. Right? The idea of being dead, dead, tired, became quite literal. She takes the tent peg and she nails his head into the ground. Now, the question I have on this story is, what do we make of it? Is it a PG story that would make it into a beautiful Disney-type movie? Or perhaps no. Now, the problem is that the psukim themselves don't sound so explicit. It sounds like he's tired. She gives him what to drink. She comforts him, covers in a blanket. Maybe he has a fever. He's cold and hot all at the same time. She gives him some warm milk. She gives him shelter, sleeps, and it's all good. And if that's the case, then it's just she brings him into her home. 
provides him with shelter and security, and then kills him. That perhaps is one way of looking at it. If we take a look at Shira's Devora, Pasach of Zion, it's a little bit more tricky. He laid between her legs. And where he lied is where he falls. Now, in Paragdalit, it sounds like she finds a couch for him, bed, the guest room. He falls asleep. He's in a deep sleep. She goes out quietly, gets the stuff, nails his head. But in Pasuk of Zayin, Ben to sleep between one's legs does not have a PG undertone. The question is, is there perhaps more going on here? And so that's where we're introduced to the Gemara Nazir and Daphav Gimel Amin Aleph. And the Gemara, Amad Bet rather, sorry. The Gemara says, if you look at it, that the, the lulling him to sleep, yes, it sounds nice that she lulls him into sleep with, water, with, with milk, to water. But think about the context. She covers him up in a blanket. And then he's like, give me to drink. I'm so thirsty. What's going on underneath that blanket? Did something happen first? Bain Ragaleha, between her legs. Says the Gemara Nazir. There's something missing here. Do you know how she lulls him in? She uses her beauty. And she draws him in. There's a man on the run. And here you have Yael, this gorgeous woman who says, come into my tent. Nah, it's all right. No, come into my tent. You'll lay in my bed. Under the covers, between my legs. He's thirsty. Yes, Gemara, there is a sexual undertone here. The Gemara goes on to say that they actually slept together seven times. Rabbi Gil's student, has a website where he has like these musings on Torah thoughts. And he asks the question, is this really possible? And this is the question that I kind of struggled with in preparing for this shear. You have a man who's on the run. According to the Malbim, his goal is to regroup so that he could do what? He can go battle yet another day. This gorgeous woman comes out and says, hey, come on in. And his answer isn't, I- Goodbye, I'm going. He comes in. So is it that this man is just so base that he has no thought, his lust overcomes him at this moment? See, if I didn't have the Malbim, I would say, okay, listen, this guy understands. His life is lost anyway. So carpe diem. Seize the day. Let me sleep with her. At least I'll have something good today before someone catches me and kills me. But if he's on the run and his plan is to escape safely, that's his hope. The whole thing is very, very difficult. How do we understand this? And how do we understand the fact that Yael is willing to give herself up? Did he really even need that? Not exactly sure. So McGill student quotes the Rashbash. The Rashbash says, no, that is not exactly what happened. What happens is he sees a beautiful woman. He has a hot, uh, a warm glass of milk. He's drinking the warm glass of milk. And it gets his, it gets his, uh, his body going a little bit. She's beautiful. He lies down, takes a nap. And he has carry. He has an emission from the thoughts in his head of this beautiful woman. 
It says the Rashbash, the Gemara is not meant to be taken literally in Nazir, but rather the fact that he, they slept together seven times, it said he had seven emissions, and that's in his mind. He's dreaming. His last thoughts are of her. And perhaps we could understand a little bit better the whole cultural clash. Yael has joined the Jewish people. Chever has decided he's going to become part of the Jewish people. The Jewish people through Yael are supposed to be on this higher level. And yet you see Sisra, who, while fleeing for his life, is such a base person. Perhaps that's what the Gemara is doing for us. Or perhaps the Gemara is actually meant to be taken literally. And maybe, as Ravikal Ariel so beautifully does, he draws this parallel between Esther and Yael. Both who say, I'm willing to give of my life. I'm willing to give myself, my body away in order to save the Jewish people. He does point out that Yael, at least it's Chad Kami. She gets herself back. Esther never. Let's take a look at a piece by Rav Yigal Ariel. Beautiful idea. He says, Yael chirgami masul chayeha. Yatsam in a ohel. She goes out of the tent. Yatsam in tzniu talaman Yisrael. She gives up for her tzniu, her sense of modesty for the Jewish people. Remember how she described, she's Eishas Chever Akeni. She's just the lady that lives in the tent. V'shilma mechir kaved al hitnevutol aragat sisrael. And she gives, she pays a dear price, a heavy bounty to kill Sisra. Now he does not say, it said she gives up her life and sleeps with him. That is his next paragraph. But rather, he says that she does two things. She lies and she's disgusting. She takes and plays on his belief in her. Imagine bringing someone into your house as a guest with full heart, with a whole heart, and then you rob them blind. Maybe it's possible that he really wasn't running away. And he didn't need a place of shelter. And yet she traps him. He's giving orders. If anyone comes, don't tell them I'm in here. He's still the general. It means that he was not mitya'esh. He still believes that he has a that he has a chance to live another day. She's saying to him, I know, I believe in you, Sisra, but you need your strength. Take a nap, drink some milk, relax. Not a nice and clean way. If you think that you could fight a Russia with with pure and good ways, it's not true. You can't just give them a, you're not going to make them humble or, or, or fall before you from a cup of milk. The EF it's not going to just be a straight path. If you're going against people that fight dirty, you have to fight dirty back. That when you fight evil, you cannot have your hands shackled by the ways, the good ways of Sidkut the Yashu. 
Sometimes you have to play down to your enemy. The thing is that Yael plays down to him for just a moment. But when the moment passes, what does she do? She says, I'm going to, I'm going to move on. I'm going to be a good person. Let's continue with Pasuk Chavet. what happens? She says, come, I'll show you what there is to see. You want the guy? I know who you're looking for. Sister is dead. And the tenth peg is in his temple. And Yavin is humble. He is, um, his strength is weakened. And the Jewish people prevail and they are once again free. And it will remain this way until they eventually destroy and, uh, and, and, and beat out Yavin Melech Kinan. Interesting. Not sure if there's anything to it, but Karat has two connotations. It's the connotation of Karat, like you can make a covenant, and it also has to cut. Which one is it? Not 100%. Perhaps, once again, the text is giving us a, uh, a, double, a double meaning to tell us how difficult it is to understand. I want to end with a beautiful thought, a beautiful idea about how we are to understand one other woman in this story. And this, the, the, at the end of our Shira, the end of Shira Devorah, it says, Out of the window looked the mother, and Aim Sisra is crying. Why is it taking him so long to come? Why is it the footsteps of his chariots are not here? What are the wise people answer? She has an answer too. Everybody comes up with different answers. Why they're late. And then this is what they said, what she says. They're dividing up the bounty. They're dividing up the loot of war. Racham Rachmatayim. Racham Rachmatayim. They're dividing up wombs. Says the mother of Sisso, what are they dividing up? They're dividing up the women, the spoils, the pillage, the rape that's going to come. That's what they're doing. The Pasuk wants to tell us this is who your enemy is. Listen to their voices. Listen to their language. Listen to Rabbi Michael Hatton. While the women of Israel proclaim life's inherent sanctity and celebrate its inviolate worth, leaving their proverbial tense account of the threat, but never reveling in the enemy's demise. Think about Yael and Devorah. Is there anywhere in here Devorah sings a song of 31 psukim law. In those psukim, she doesn't marvel at the death. She doesn't make a big deal about all the, the, the gore of war. She's happy the Jewish people are saved. Yael leaves her tent as a, as a housewife and is willing to engage in, in deceit and war for a moment. But then she goes back and says, just look what's in my tent. She doesn't want to be a part of it. And yet Sisra's mother dreams of more bloodshed. The real struggle then is not between Sisra and Barak, but rather between the mother of Sisra and Devorah, between Yael and the obsequious attendants, between the immorality of the Kanani and their culture of death, 
and the ethical morality of the Torah. What is it that the Torah wants us to know? The Torah wants to know that in this horrible scene, in this terrible tragedy, in all that happens, it is Aim Sisra that revels in death, but it is Yael, it is Devorah that simply say, we just want to live in peace. We just want quiet times. Just leave us be. Just leave us alone. It is fascinating. This is one picture. There are tons of famous paintings from the 1600s and the 1700s of the story. And in so many of them, Yael is portrayed as a seductive force. Her, the, the cut on her neck, on her dress, is more revealing than perhaps it should be. Why? Because the picture that's painted by the rest of the world is that Yael is this seductive force, this horrific woman. But that's not how we view it. We view it as God turning to the Jewish people and saying, listen, all I want you to do is the right thing. What I want you to do is be good, be above all that, be moral. Look at who you're dealing with. Contrast is so clear. This ragtag army defeats the 900 chariots, the super, the superpower of its time in Canaan. But God says, I don't want you to continue to live a life of war like that. I just want you to be peaceful. Just make it all good. Can you possibly just do the right thing? That is exactly what God is looking for. And that is what the Jewish people should be. If only. Could have been, should have been, would have, but not. That is the message of Perak Dalit and Perak We'll continue next week with Perak Vav, the next Shofei Gidon. Get ready for another wild story of a Shofei. Thank you again for joining us. Have a wonderful week and keep walking in the ways of the prophet.